Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Uh, okay, we're going to start a new series today. It is called Twin Tracks. We are going to spend the next four weeks exploring the Psalms together. Why twin tracks, I hear you ask. Well, I mean, you're like me. You notice as you go through life, there seems to be continually good stuff and bad stuff happening at the same time. It's like we've got one rail that's basically... Well, that's what I'd prefer, a monorail, wouldn't you? Just one track of good stuff that I'm permanently on. Happiness, joy, things that are really nice, things that are just making me feel better about life. I think most of us would like to ride... A monorail. But in reality, life is much more like this. We seem to ride these two parallel tracks of good stuff and bad stuff happening in our lives at the same time. And as much as we'd like to jump the bad rail and just ride the good rail, life doesn't seem to be, it just doesn't seem to work that way, does it? you can, you're continually going through a series of, of stuff that's making you feel good and also stuff that's making you feel not so good. Highs and lows, happy stuff and hard stuff, joy and lament happening at the same time. Modern culture propagates the idea if you get enough stuff, you can jump the bad rail and just ride the good rail. If you get enough money, if you get enough influence, enough fame... Uh, enough uh, stuff around you, you can just jump the bad rail and ride the good rail. But that's just a myth. It's just a myth propagated by culture. You can't avoid the bad rail as much uh, as we ride, we ride those, both those rails at the same time. It's the way life works for us. Um, and the reason we want to look in the Psalms is because the Psalms address this twin rail experience of life. The language of the Psalms, the the poems of the Psalms, they speak into this twin rail experience of life, the good and the bad happening, and they address and express the tensions that we all feel as we journey through life. They put language to our twin rail experience. I thought we'd start today by watching the excellent overview by the guys at the Bible Project on the book of the Psalms. So sit back and enjoy this short video. Those guys give us a quick overview of the book of the Psalms. The book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73, actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. 
At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2. Two, which stand outside of book one because most of the poems in book one are linked to David except Psalms one and two, which are anonymous. Psalm one celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now the word Torah simply means teaching and more specifically it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here actually the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in in the Messianic King will be blessed, precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future Messianic Kingdom. Now with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the Messianic kingdom. Then book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the Messianic king over all of the nations. 
This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David, but now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hollow and the other called the Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combine all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament 
poems. And it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound. And it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope, that's what the book of Psalms is all about. <clears throat> And that's all there is to it. How did you find them? <laughs> Those guys at Bible Project do a fantastic job of, uh, of summarising things for us. So you can see, really, this book is a very, very timely book, uh, considering where we are at the moment with, with things in the world. It expresses this tension that we find ourselves in praise and lament, hoping, hoping God will come and bring about change uh, and bring about transformation. And we can see from that video that um, the Psalms teach us not to ignore pain in our lives. Just because we're followers of Christ, just because we're believers in God, we don't have to ignore pain. We don't have to ignore struggle. We can recognise it, we can feel it, we can express it back to God. We can speak to God about the struggles in our lives, about the bad rail stuff that we're happening. But equally, our faith is forward-looking. It's a forward-leaning faith. And so... Coupled with that expression of pain and struggle, we have this hope. We carry this hope, which we expressed this morning in communion. We have this hope that our God will not leave us. Our God will not forsake us. Our God is a covenant God. Our God is a God who promises to be with us. Our God is a God who promises to restore and reconcile all things. And so we can lean into that aspect of our faith at the same time. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring the Psalms, looking at these uh, particular aspects of uh, Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. In the last week of this series, Faith and Hope, James, the guy who spoke in our All One series, is going to come back and do that talk for us. So we're really looking forward to welcoming James again to talk about faith and hope. But today I want to give you an introduction to the Psalms and look at why they're so important for our spiritual lives. As we've seen from the video, they're a collection of poems, um, a collection of hymns, often put to song. Um, they're written mostly to be sung, so when we read them just uh, maybe in our quiet time, we're not fully getting the way they were used uh, in their original form. And they cover all sorts of different topics. They tell of a creator God who rules the nations, who's over the universe. They tell of uh, injuries and injustice. They tell of fear and suffering. They talk of enemies, of lies, of traps, of joy, of praise, of lament. But as we read them, we have to recognise they are poetic in nature. Um, they're addressing our minds through our hearts primarily. They're poetic in nature. They intentionally are written emotively to stir us in that way. And therefore we have to be careful not to sort of deconstruct them and try and figure out what every single word means, um, because they're written in this poetic, emotive form. They're there to stoke feelings. They're there to get in touch with feelings. They're there to help you and I express our feelings back to God in prayer. The language of these 
Psalms is purposely metaphorical, so we read things like mountains skip like rams. I've seen a few mountains, I've not seen any skipping like rams. Have you? So if you were to read your Bible literally, you'd be going around looking for those skippy mountains, but you wouldn't probably find any. But the, the poetry there is to sort of express that God is in all of creation. Even these fantastic vistas and mountains we see, God is in the heart of them. And they resound and respond to the heart of God like a, like a lamb skipping in joy. We read of God being portrayed as a shepherd, as a fortress, as a shield, as a rock. All these different uh, images to try and help us think about the nature and the character of God. Psalm 23, a very famous psalm, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. If you took Psalm 23, literally, you'd think that God was a rural God, a God that was primarily interested in pastures and green spaces and not interested in cities or towns. But that obviously isn't the case. We know that God is a God of all these different spaces where we inhabit. And so it's important when we read our Bibles, we're aware of the type of the, read, of the writing that we're reading. What was it written for? What was the context? What is the intent? And the fact that the Psalms are emotive uh, and creative means they can be really helpful to us when we find ourselves with this twin rail experience of life. The tension between the good and the bad happening at the same time. They're not a textbook. You can't go to the Psalms looking for specific answers to questions. But you can go to the Psalms to help you express the struggle and the tension you experience as you journey through life. They can help you express the depth of your feeling to God. They can show you it's okay to be real and authentic to God just as the psalmists were. As the video explains, there's 150 psalms in your Bible. Originally there were 147, but now um, one occurs twice, 14 and 53. And there's two that are broken down into two parts, 9 and 10 and 42 and 43. And the video alluded to when they were potentially written. They were potentially written at the time of exile, or at least gathered together, the time of exile of, of the Israelites into Babylon. In fact, a lot of your Bible would have come together, the information you Bible, the letters and the content would have come together around that time because you had a people in exile, a people who'd been overthrown and taken captive. Jerusalem was in ruins and the Babylonians had carried the people off to a foreign land. And in that foreign land, they're trying to make sense of where is God? Where is God in our midst? How, how has God allowed this to happen to us? How can we hold on to God when we've lost the, the trappings of our religion? We've lost the temple. We've lost the structures. So how can we hold on to God? And so in the form of writings and narratives and stories and poems, these people were trying to hold on to their God in the midst of being captured in a foreign land. You see in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, the famous song that some of you will be aware of, <laughs> that was taken by Boniem and somehow turned into a poppet, I don't know how, but they took the words of Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered our former city, Jerusalem, 
we've been captured and we've been taken into this foreign land, these foreign cultures and foreign gods, and we're weeping for what was. And the people there, the captors demand songs from them. They demand them to sing songs of joy. And the psalmist goes on to express, um, you'll see these words as, as the first bit there. And then they say, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? How can we express these songs to God when we, here we are in captivity, in oppression? And so you see how the psalmists are being so real about their situation and they get really real with their feelings with phrases like this. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now, if we're looking at the Bible as a textbook, we've got a problem here, haven't we? (laughs) We've got a problem because it would seem the Bible advocates revenge against children. And actually, we can find happiness and contentment by taking our enemy's children and smashing their heads in. But we have to remember, don't we, that this is the emotive language of someone who's in captivity, infuriated, frightened, looking for revenge, looking for justice. And the fact that things like this are in your Bibles helps you understand the humanity in your Bibles. This isn't a book that's been sanitised or curated by God that only ever reflects just God's side of the story. This is a book that has the fullness of humanity in it. So in here, we have the fullness of human feeling and the depth of feeling, however misplaced and misguided that is. And no one I trust would take this as instruction for life because this is not what this was designed to be. We've got unfettered anger and unfettered pain here at human suffering, coupled with a desire for revenge in the darkest possible way. And so we can see the Psalms really do plumb the depths of human emotion and expression. But also they're full of trust in God. They're full of praise to God. They're full of expression of lament over wickedness and injustice. The book of the Psalms are arranged, as we saw, into five sections. Book 1, Psalm 1 to 41, all but, uh, as we said in the video, 1 and 2 are entitled of David. So these first section of Psalms are written by King David. Then we've got book two, Psalm 42 to 72. And these are written by the sons of Korah or Asaph and uh, even of Solomon. Then we move on, Psalm 73 to 89. Mostly Asaph or the sons of Korah wrote these. And then moving down, uh, Psalm 90, most again by King David. And then through again, more and more psalms by King David as we come to the end of the book. And as the guy said, you can spot the end of each book because there's a doxology at the end of each book. So Psalm 41, 13, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen, concludes book one. Book two, Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who has done marvellous deeds. goes on to say, Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory Amen and Amen. Book five ends in the end. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. And we see the similar sort of themes in the last two books. So the books are arranged uh, in sequence. They're designed to tell a story uh, of the exile 
and the hope of the future restoration of God's people. They mirror that, uh, that time of exile from Jerusalem into Babylon and then the hope the people were restored back into Jerusalem. The books uh, one and two focus on David as king, but under ultimately God's kingship, under God's authority. So even though David's king, God is still ultimate king. And then book three, we focus on the, the fall of Jerusalem, dealing with the pain and the loss and the lament of, of God's people being taken from God's city into exile, into captivity. Book three has got the darkest psalms in it. Um, it's got six how longs. How long, God? How long? How long? Why are we still waiting? Why are we still in exile? Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you doing something? You know, if you're waiting for God to do something, some of the language of Psalm 3 can be really helpful because it's an expression of the human condition. God, why won't you move? Why am I still waiting? How long, God, before you come and do something? It's got the darkest psalm, Psalm 88. If you read that, it's pretty bleak. It's a pretty bleak psalm. Uh, The only note of hope in that psalm is the opening line, the God who saves me. The rest is pretty bleak. And it plums again the, the, the darkest sense of human emotion and suffering. This book ends with a lament in Psalm 89 of the demise of the Davidic covenant. O oh Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? And so people again expressing um, the kind of the breaking of the relationship or seeming so between God and his people. So, yeah, book three, you find some pretty bleak psalms in there. And again, that's important to understand why, because if you just flick your Bible open and think, I'll just dive into book three of the Psalms today and hope God is going to encourage me, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle because those Psalms are written to a certain time in a certain context. And I'm not saying God can't speak to you out of those Psalms and help you from those Psalms, but if you're looking to be lifted up, you may not find that in that particular section of your Bible because your Bible isn't all the same. It's not a uniform set of writings. It's, it's full of different writings at different times, different people, different settings, expressing different things. Book four begins by um, reminding us that God's still in charge. The the covenants um, are still in place. God's still dwelling with his people, even though it seems pretty bleak. Um, There's two psalms of trust and thanksgiving in 91 and 92. And then there's a collection of God's kinship psalms, 93 to 100. So even though... The monarchy, the present monarchy is in a state. The psalmist is is expressing that God is still in charge. God is still ultimately reigning. And the book ends with psalms of praise, 101 to 106. And these last words appeal for God to gather the exiles. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. That's Psalm 106. Then moving into book five, um, the gathering of praise, the, the, the forward leaning into what God is going to do, assumes the gathering of all the exiles. He's looking forward to this great future, God's plan and purpose being executed. Psalm 107 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. And that's followed by Psalm 108, which proclaims God's rule over all of the nations. 
And so, in summary, the first three books are predominantly laments, as the video shows, then leaning forward into psalms of praise, coupled with those sort of twin tracks of these things overlapping. So how can the psalms help us? Well, we've touched into it briefly, haven't we? We've touched into the fact that the psalms can help us when we're struggling with the twin tracks of life. You and I right now, as you sit here this morning, can think about things that fall on the good rail of your life and things that fall on the bad rail of your life. You can think about things that you want to give praise for and maybe you can think about things that you're currently lamenting or struggling with. And the Psalms can help us because they help us bring those things to God in the place of prayer. You might have been raised in kind of a church expectation that you have to sort of come to God almost like in, your, in like a sanitised way. You know, you only come to God like in a formal way. When you've got all your ducks in a row, you speak to him in a, in a formal way and address him as someone in authority. But actually the Psalms show us we can come to God completely in the raw, expressing our emotion to us. And they teach us not to ignore the pain and the hurt in our lives, but to bring that to God in the place of prayer. They really do help us navigate these twin tracks. They draw attention to things and they say to God, will you do something about this? And they also show us that lament is an appropriate response to evil, to bad things that are happening in our world and in our lives. Lament is an appropriate response to that. Our modern culture encourages us to leapfrog over pain. If you're suffering, you know, the best thing you can do is go and buy something off Amazon to make yourself feel better, isn't it? Or go and, go and do something, or go and distract yourself, or go and or watch something, or do anything to leapfrog over the pain that you're feeling. But actually, the healthy thing to do is go into that pain with the Lord. Pass through that valley with God and process what you're feeling. And the Psalms help us to do that in a healthy and appropriate way. We can express the pain and express the confusion. We can express the horror to God and we can say, God, will you do something about it? Will you move? And they also help us draw attention to what's good in the world and what's good in our own lives. The things we, we call to give praise for, the things we call to give thanks for. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. It's a beautiful phrase, and we can use that over and over again when thinking about the different things that are happening in our own lives. And so they help us to hold these twin tracks together. They help us to navigate them as we pass through our world. So I want to suggest possibly the way we could use the Psalms going forward. The, um, the Anglican Book of Modern Prayer it organizes the Psalms into a form like this, and they suggest that we regularly read through the Psalms. Now, when you look at this, you might think, flipping out, that's a lot of reading. <laughs> you know, no way can I navigate that much liturgy um, in my life. But what I'm advocating today that we might all try and do over the next few weeks is maybe incorporate some of the Psalms into our daily lives. We may maybe pick from the different books uh, as we journey through the next few weeks and maybe incorporate some of those Psalms into our daily lives. Psalms are a bit like a gymnasium. Augustine called the Psalms a school. St. Ambrose, he called them a gymnasium. It's almost like a place where we can do daily spiritual workouts as we read the Psalms and use them to address the things going on in our lives, keeping our spirituality in shape. 
Because the Psalms cover the whole range of human experience, they kind of give us a full body spiritual workout, if you like. Anger to rage, trust to praise, it's all covered in the Psalms. If you sandwich Psalms between other aspects of your spiritual walk, you can end up with a pattern that looks a bit like this. Corporate worship, daily praying of the Psalms, and recollected prayer. What does that term recollected prayer mean? Well, recollected prayer is just simply the prayers that come to mind, the spontaneous prayers, the prayers that we pray spontaneously throughout the day as we think about the things that we face. And so we can end up with a pattern like this where we come together in corporate worship like we're doing today. We incorporate the Psalms into our prayer life and we also have this spontaneous prayer that the Bible encourages us to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. So we end up with a pattern or a rhythm that really helps us to grow and stay healthy spiritually. The Psalms are so important because they help us be honest with God. Be honest with God. And that's, I think, one of the most things that Christians particularly struggle with is authenticity. You know, just to be honest about where we're at, what we're feeling, what we're struggling with. Because we're conditioned to present a face, aren't we? We're conditioned to present a certain acceptable face. But actually, God's really interested in you authentically, where you actually are, what you really are struggling with and walking through at this particular time. And the Psalms help us relate honestly to God about expressing our joy and our our disappointments, our praise and our laments. And they also give instruction on how to articulate those things. As we read the Psalms, we can articulate those metaphors and analogies are in there, give language to our pain, our expression. They deepen and broaden our ability to speak to God. As we cry out to God, it's not a judgment on God's faithfulness. It's not a judgment on you thinking that somehow God is less than he is. It's just expressing the the true nature of your condition, what you're currently going through. And they also help us to think about the fact we need to stop and think and reflect about what we're really feeling and what we're really experiencing. And also stop and think about and reflect on God's goodness and what he's done for us and what he continues to do. So the Psalms invite us into a deeper, deeper level of prayer. And that's what I hope over the next few weeks we're going to journey a little bit together. We can maybe try and incorporate the Psalms into our own prayer lives. You may have never read them. You may have dived into the wrong section, thought I can't get on with these at all. But hopefully, giving you an overview today of the way they were organised and, and what they are trying to do and what they're trying to express, maybe it will help you use them in a better way. I think they can really deepen our communion with God. They've been used in the church over centuries. And there's no reason we should not use them today. They have a great sense of capturing the reality of humanity. And also that forward-looking sense of the coming kingdom, the Messiah, who will make all things right. We live in these... Turbulent times, don't we, as Jake really expressed last week in his preach, of conflict and uncertainty. And there is a great time to really lean into the Psalms. You know, when you watch something on the news, what what do you do with it? Where do you go with it? Well, maybe you go to the Psalms. And maybe you use some of the language there to express the pain and the lament of what you're feeling.
you should be able to write it each time with me. I'm just going to invite the band to come back. And we're going to spend a bit more time in God's presence today. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside. <laughs>